Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 26th episode of Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every week on Thursday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you, my late night listener, to leave a rating and review on this podcast. They are always helpful, and I really appreciate it. Now let's get into today's case, which is actually local to me. It has gone unsolved for a very long time, but only because those involved with her murder have not been persecuted for it. I really think it's important to get this story out because there just has to be something that can be done. For stories like this, it's really important to spread awareness, so let's begin. Today we're going to be discussing the disappearance and murder of Taylor Ann McAllister. Taylor Ann McAllister was born on July 21st, 1994 in Melbourne, Florida to her loving parents, Leslie and Bill McAllister. She was one of five siblings. The family spent a few years in Florida, then they moved to Tennessee for a while before relocating back to Florida, where Taylor would attend schools in Tarpon Springs. Growing up, Taylor was musically talented. She would always be singing and dancing for her family, and eventually that evolved into something more. She started to teach herself how to play the guitar and would spend hours learning songs and recording them. Her parents described her as an unbelievable old soul. They said that she loved everyone and had this way of drawing people to her. She was the type of person who would always help anyone and never judged or thought badly of people. She was quick-witted, sarcastic, and always joking. She would do impressions and movie quotes, and even during something serious, she could get anyone laughing. There were many times when a friend of hers would be having a difficult time, and she would call her parents and ask if they would stay with them. She was not someone who could just like stand by and not help anyone. She would always stick up for her friends, and she would always help them out. You know, she loved going out on the boat. She loved doing things in the water, swimming, just basically anything to do with the water. And she was also a homebody and preferred to be at home with her little sisters, making videos or watching movies. She was known to be just like this loving, caring person. So you can imagine the horrible loss the family felt when the body of their bright, vibrant young daughter was found in an alleyway in St. Petersburg, Florida, three days before Christmas in 2016. She was found in nothing but a gray t-shirt with tire marks imprinted across the skin on her legs. She had clearly been beaten. Her cause of death was ruled homicidal asphyxiation. There was testing done on her body in order to locate any possible DNA. And there was a match that was found. That match was to a man named Robert Henry Butler III. And it was also later confirmed that four other people took part in disposing of Taylor. So why has no one been charged with her murder to this day? Well, of course, there's so much more to the story. To understand what happened to Taylor, we really have to understand her history and background. While this young woman was all the good things mentioned before, she also had personal issues involving drug addiction. This topic has been very controversial for her case because of the assumptions made about victims when they do use. I mean, I don't want this to define who she was 
and I definitely don't want it to set the tone for her unsolved murder, but I do think it is important to talk about, so let's discuss. Taylor was the mother of two beautiful twin girls named Charlie Ann and Madison Ray. She was already struggling with some drug abuse issues, but it was after their birth when she was prescribed pain medication that she spiraled even further. Her addiction grew stronger and really started to impact every aspect of her life. This addiction meant that she was always moving around a lot, place to place, with, you know, some not so great people. She wouldn't contact her parents for a few months or so, and she would call from new phone numbers frequently. Taylor had started to surround herself with like a lot of shady people as a result of this new lifestyle, but she didn't necessarily give up all positive aspects of her life. I mean, she still had healthy friendships with two good friends she had known for a long time, and these friends had never used drugs, but you know, they still kept in touch with Taylor, and that kind of kept her grounded for a while. She kept in contact with them, and when she was with them, she was, you know, the same nice, caring, loving Taylor that, you know, I described earlier. But eventually, after a while, Taylor cut contact with her family, which she did on and off. And then she even went a step further where she kind of stopped talking to those two close friends of hers. So because this was kind of typical, you know, on her family side of things, for her to just not get back in touch with them. She was never reported missing because, you know, her parents, they assumed she would call back like she always did. She was doing her thing where she was like hopping around from place to place. And, you know, they also had a general area that they knew she stayed in, which was Palm Harbor, Florida. So there wasn't any real worry since they had an idea where she was. I mean, of course they worried, I'm sure, their daughter had issues with substance abuse, drug abuse. But, I mean, there was not much they could really do personally or even legally with an adult daughter suffering from drug addiction. So, you know, really no one was hearing from Taylor prior to her death. And her last known address was with the suspect, Robert Henry Butler. So she had met him through an acquaintance while she was using drugs. And, you know, this man, he actually is the heir of a place called Bob's Carpet and Flooring, which is a well-known flooring store in Southwest Florida. So, you know, he's rather wealthy, but outside of his wealth, he has a dark past. This includes an extensive criminal history of, you know, aggravated assault, battery, false imprisonment, carrying a gun, and this happened at the Tampa International Airport, I mean, he has multiple misdemeanors, multiple felonies, drug charges, drug paraphernalia charges, three DUIs. Um, one of his offenses was actually in connection to an, the overdose of an underage female. So basically, this guy is a serious criminal. And I mean, of course, Taylor was already hanging out with shady characters and Butler was just another one of them. But their relationship would soon become much more like right after she met him. I feel he became kind of infatuated with her. He's much older than her, like 40s, I think around the time, 50s, that kind of age. So he was much older than her. She's in her early 20s at the time. They kind of entered this weird relationship. So I feel like he kind of took advantage of the fact that 
you know, Taylor was suffering from drug addiction and she was so much younger, so much more naive than him. He convinced her to move in with him and he, quote unquote, took care of her by supplying her with drugs on a regular basis. And that's how their relationship was. Like, Taylor, she's young and beautiful and she's just kind of serves as kind of like a prop for him almost. And she stays with him because he's supplying her with anything she wants. And what she wants is drugs. Let's, okay, we talked about the relationship, but let's kind of talk about the night that Taylor was murdered or, or I guess the night that her body was dumped because There's just so much going on in this story. Not a lot of it adds up. Let me just get into it and explain it to you at the end. But yeah, there are just many different versions told. So I'm just going to sum it up as best as I can. If you want further information, then you can do the research and see what was said by, you know, each of the people involved. Um, But the facts, they really start to change once we get into the night of. So... Let's just say that the night starts when Taylor becomes visibly sick. And this is the word used, sick, by Butler. I'm unsure what sick really means, but, you know, basically they say that she was not in control of her bodily function, she's barely conscious. You know, so Butler, he decides to call over his drug dealer, Deontay Baker, and several other friends of Deontay's. So the friends' names were Desmond Washington and Corin Archer. All of these men admitted to Washington being there, this whole situation. Because um, I just wanted to say that because he's not really mentioned too much in any kind of article. So I just want to kind of insert that. There's also another person, like a fifth person, but we'll get into that later. So... Basically, Butler asked Deontay Baker and his boys to come over to help him with Taylor. Now, Deontay says that Butler never actually mentioned how serious Taylor's condition was prior to calling him and that there was no mention of getting medical attention or police involved or calling 911. He only stated that Butler said today was the day he wanted to finally get Taylor some help. So Deontay and three friends, they drive 45 minutes to Butler's house. When they walk in, they see Taylor in terrible condition. She had peed on herself. She appeared to be in great pain and just out of it completely. Butler told the men to drive Taylor to the hospital. He was apparently afraid that if they called 911, he would get in trouble for having drugs and guns inside his home. Because I, I mean, he's, he's a felon. He's a convicted felon. So that was the reasoning given behind them not calling 911. You know, Butler refused to touch Taylor and forced, you know, Deontay and his boys to move her. One of Deontay's friends named Desmond Washington was the one who physically moved Taylor into Butler's truck. Another one of Deontay's friends, Corin Archer, he drove alone in Butler's truck with Taylor inside. The others drove behind him. Butler was not with them when they were driving Taylor, supposedly driving Taylor to the hospital. That's where they were supposed to go. At some point, Taylor passes away inside of the truck. The men call Butler to notify him, but he insists that they just, quote, 
take care of it, unquote. The men spend some time conspiring on how to get rid of her, and they keep driving for about 25 miles. Later, while being interviewed by police, Deontay admitted that some of the ideas consisted of burying her, but instead they kind of freaked out and they decided to pull over and dump her in an alley before speeding off. They sped off so fast that they actually accidentally ran her over, so that explains the tire marks on her leg. But still, there are some serious holes in this story, and the missing pieces, I think, really lie with Butler. What had really happened to Taylor to have her in the condition that she was in? Because when Taylor's body was discovered, she appeared to have been beaten. She was severely bruised. There were scrapes and cuts all in her mouth. And, you know, the only thing that she was wearing was a shirt that was pulled up exposing her breasts. There was DNA found under her fingernails and on her neck as if she had scratched someone fighting for her life. I mean, there was the outline of fingers on the right side of her neck and also the clear fact that her death was ruled as a homicide. So, you know, the medical examiner has ruled out any chance of an overdose. There was extensive damage done to Taylor's body. You know, in the description of this episode, you'll be able to find links and images to show the extensive damage done. I mean, they're not for the faint of heart. Just a warning, they are post-mortem pictures. So just a warning, but I'm going to include that so you guys can see it for yourself, how she looked. Um, it doesn't add up at all. And I just want to point this out. So, you know, the men, they go, they get rid of Taylor's body. They go back to Butler's house. They decide that they're going to all stick to the same story about Taylor's death. They burn their clothing. They destroy surveillance tapes in the area that would show them moving her body. And they discard Taylor's belongings into multiple dumpsters. They also clean the truck Taylor was in. They clean the house and they dispose the mattress she was on. Taylor's found at 7.30 a.m. on December 22, 2016. She was found by a man collecting cans in the alley. So police interview Butler the same day that Taylor was found. They observe fresh scratches on his face, nose, and arm. They ask for his DNA, but he immediately asks for his lawyer. So, you know, police, they have to obtain a warrant for a swab of, you know, DNA from his mouth. And so they get that, they get the results back, and it's a match. The DNA under Taylor's fingernails matches Butler's. And, you know, the fresh scratches on his face were from Taylor. So this brings up so many questions. So basically, the police kind of were stating that because she lived with him, having his DNA under her nails wasn't that you know indicative of anything but I mean he has scratches on his face so that basically is like evidence of some kind of altercation I would feel but I guess they can't confirm that but still there are so many holes in the story apparently she was sick that's what was said that's like the verbiage used so she was sick and it's kind of implied that it was from drugs or an overdose but if that was true, why did he have scratches on him? Why, why does it look like Taylor was defending herself from him? Why does she have significant bruising on her to the point that she had appeared to have been beaten? Why was her death ruled to be a homicide? 
And why destroy all this evidence? Why go through cleaning the house, go through cleaning the truck, go through, you know, doing all these things, getting rid of a mattress if she just died from an overdose? I feel like it would be easy to explain like, okay, she had an overdose. We panicked. She died. So we dumped her body. But I guess it's harder for you to explain that you beat a girl to death because her death was not from an overdose. Her death, it was said by the medical examiner that her death was caused by homicidal asphyxiation. So that right there tells you that someone has to be at fault, you know? Homicide means someone else committed the crime, you know? Someone else murdered her. So someone has to be at fault. There just seems to be an abundance of evidence against these men and specifically Butler and basically they confess to all being involved but to this day Taylor's case is still considered a cold case. Here's a few reasons why I think that it is. I already mentioned that she lived with him so DNA found on her really wouldn't hold up that well in court um, but also the detectives on her case they initially they didn't have enough evidence to get a search warrant of Butler's house. So they were just kind of scoping like the first few days after finding her, they were scoping out his house and they saw people coming in and out, cleaning the house, getting rid of all the evidence. So they didn't have enough evidence in the first place. And then they were watching people clean the house and clean up evidence that they could have had. So there was that. And then there was also the question of Taylor's, you know, health even before she died, like she was using drugs. So, you know, it appeared that she was badly beaten, but her body was already already in really poor condition due to her drug use. She had hepatitis, kidney failure, and bacterial growth on her heart valves that can come from using dirty, dirty needles. She had abscesses in her lungs and suffered a stroke. And so, yeah, there's that. And also, no one would admit to murder. That's like clearly the biggest reason why nothing's been done. No one would admit to murder. So while they confessed their involvement during the night of Taylor's death and, you know, dropping her body off, you know, her having this quote unquote overdose, even though clearly her cause of death says something different. They, they confessed to all that, basically. They confessed to all that part, like her having the overdose, getting rid of her after she passes away, whatever. But they don't actually confess to who caused all the bruises and markings on her body. They don't confess to why she has those marks on her throat. Things like that, that caused the medical examiner to say that her death was a homicide. And so, you know, the detectives, they did try to push them they tried to apply pressure to them and say they were going to convict them all of money laundering. And this is more related to the whole drugs thing, which is like a whole separate issue. But, you know, they were hoping someone would just like rat anyone out about what, what had happened. But no one did. No one said anything. No one confessed to anything. They all stuck to the story that they gave of what happened that night. And at the end of it all, these men were hardly punished for their crimes. Robert Henley Butler III was only convicted of failure to report a death. He was given a year and he served eight months. Deontay Baker was only convicted of failure to report a death. He was given a year and he served a year. 
Corn Archer was only convicted of failure to report a death. He was offered six months, but served just four months. Desmond Washington was never charged. And I mentioned this really briefly earlier, but there was also another man said to have been involved or, you know, at least there the night of. But I could not find enough consistent evidence on or about him, so I didn't mention it. But this possible fifth suspect was never charged either. As a result of the investigation into Taylor's death, Butler and Baker faced drug charges. And, you know, Butler was charged and convicted of money laundering in a federal court. And this is all in relation to the drugs again. Um, Taylor's parents, they were told that he would get 12 to 14 years, but that didn't happen because he made an agreement to testify against Deontay Baker in exchange for a lighter sentence. So he was sentenced to 40 months for money laundering, which was later reduced to 24 months, and he's scheduled to be released in 2021. Everyone else involved in the case is not imprisoned. Justice is yet to be served for Taylor. Okay, guys, so that's the entirety of this case. I mean, it's still ongoing, and every day, Taylor's parents are still fighting for something to be done about their daughter's murder. There are so many issues with this case that stems from within the actual police department. Um, so this is all current, but police, they keep stalling further investigations. They've made numerous mistakes within the past investigations, which includes losing tapes of Butler discussing his DNA matching, that of what they found under Taylor's fingernails and basically on her body. Um, they didn't pursue the fifth suspect and they didn't follow up on phone calls set up in hopes to catch a confession from Butler. I mean, there's just so much to take in, of course, because there's just so many different elements of this case, but it's obvious that it's mishandled. I mean, I think it kind of has something to do with the main suspect being a wealthy man because he, I mean, he has money. He can afford to pay people off. He can afford to, if he doesn't pay someone off, he can afford to get the best kind of lawyer, you know? So there's just a lot of corruption, it appears, and something really needs to be done. And on top of that, I feel like when victims of any crime have any issues like drug addiction, their cases are just immediately dismissed as if, any mistakes they made in their life just negates the fact that they're victims of a crime. <sighs> this case is horrible, but there is something you can do to help. First, I'm going to attach Taylor's parents' Facebook account. Every day, they are posting updates and further information. They are very consistent. They really want justice for their daughter. So I really suggest you follow that page and you basically just keep up with it and support them any way you can. Um, I'm going to attach other links as well involving the case. And if you have any further information or want to, you know, see if the police can look further into Taylor's case, you can contact Pinellas County Sheriff's Office at 727-582-6200 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-873-8477. 
Thank you guys so much for listening and come back next week for another episode. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.